Welcome to Life With Your Dog podcast. Our focus is educating dog owners, enthusiasts and dog trainers about ideas on how to train, manage, live and thrive with our dogs. To teach dogs to live in our society while our dogs teach us how to live in the now. I'm your host Panos Anagnostou. And I'm your co-host Luke Badman. Thank you for joining us and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Life With Your Dog. My name's Panos. I'm joined over Zoom by my co-host, Luke Badman, and we have a guest on today, Gary Jackson. Boys, how are we? <laughs> I'm absolutely terrific, eh? How are you going? I'm very good, thank you. What were we saying? Any day you're, a, what was it, alive and vertical and out of the ground, um, that's a good day, above right? Above ground and vertical is Above a ground good day. and vertical. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> that's the best. I love that. we got a hat. we got to always... a give some gratitude for the things we have. We kind of forget about the things that we have and we take them so for granted. Like sometimes I get seasonal allergies and I get some like random chest pains that are like excruciating. And when you're so sore, every single breath you take, you're just thinking, oh my God, breathing is good. And it's just so <laughs> normal, right? So it's um, it's a good philosophy to live by. I love it. Exactly. And you don't realize how much you appreciate something in, until it's taken away. Oh, wow. That's deep. Mm. <laughs> And I'm sure something's been taken away from you guys up in Queensland more recently in the industry, which I guess we want to, we're going to talk about. But before we do, because I know we yeah. can, we have many topics that I want to discuss. Yeah, no worries. For the listeners, can you give us a little bit of a background of you in the dog training industry, where you started, where you came from, and what you're doing today? Oh, wow. Um, I've, I've been um, training for over 40 years now, I believe not 40 years. Um, I started in the 80s. Um, my dad was a dog trainer and I started wearing arm pads as a, um, that was made by, from Boggle Road Jail from the prisoners. And uh, then we had a big kennel facility for like 25 years. And uh, in that time frame of, of just over 30 years, I've trained 20,000 dogs. So it's quite an extraordinary amount of dogs. And uh, then I was also um, an experimenter. So I, I tried to experiment with all these, these dogs over the years. So um, in the um, late 80s, I was doing um, a lot of search and rescue dogs. And I did um, search and rescue bloodhounds. Went overseas, did some stuff overseas in America, and then I came back and started doing um, Australia's first cadaver dogs. Um, like the first cadaver dogs was used at the backpacker murders. Uh, then from there, I, I was doing uh, many other detection dogs, um, dogs for Philip Morris for detection of um, uh, you know, contaminated tobacco. And then I, I, I basically, I suppose I was, I was one of the first ones to start off the environmental dogs. So I had the world's first koala detection dog and the world's first coal dog and the world's first... Oh, God, cane toe detection dog and pygmy blue tongue lizard dog and red inside a turtle dog. And, and then later on, I, I did um, uh, dogs for breast cancer, and uh, that was quite a successful program. And then from there, we also did the archaeology dog, uh, where my mentor, Bill Tolhurst, had the oldest human remains find in history. I think it was 176 years old, which was a battle of Snake Hill in Canada. And uh, wow. we ended up um, uh, locating down in South Australia a 600-year-old um, Aboriginal skeleton. So, wow. Uh, with the archaeology dogs. So I've done a lot of experimental stuff um, uh, in the dog train industry as well as all the basics, you know, with um, you know, explosive detection and drug detection and all that type of thing. So um, and the detection work is, is really what um, I, I love the most. And I, I think we actually had, um, I think it was the country's first um, scent detection room actually sped up, um, yeah, set up as a scent detection room. So we've done a few things over the years and that and uh, over the career and that, but, um, yeah, that, that's, that was a long time ago. Wow, forty years! Wow, what? Do, I mean, what did dog training even? 
like as in the industry, what did it even look like back then? Must have been pretty small, right? Um, it, was, it was it was a it was it was very small, but the thing is, we had no internet, no nothing, so you just yeah. had to learn wherever you can. I travelled overseas to study, and, and basically, if, if you said you're a dog trainer, it's like what you train greyhounds or domestic dogs. Yeah, right. And that was it. Um, and, but there was no like class distinct uh, distinction with the uh, the trainers. So if you were an obedience trainer, it it didn't matter whether you did positive and negative or whatever training you did, you were just a dog trainer. That was it. Um, so there's no um, categories of class within the uh, dog training industry. And you said that your dad started a dog training kennel or just a dog boarding kennel. Yeah, he had um, an investigation, a retailer's investigation service, and then he started doing industrial dogs. So in primary school um, in the late 70s, um, he used to use me as a guinea pig to agitate dogs behind the fence. Uh, they used to drop off in the yards and that, and then later on I started wearing arm pads, and then we had dog trainers come in to teach the dog to be aggressive, and then I was one of the guinea pigs. And I did that as a kid then in, in high school and um, and then went on, as a, um, went on as a professional dog trainer, and I just tried to be the best I possibly could. Uh, can and it's like geez 40 years i'm still here i mean i must be a glutton for punishment to be in the industry this long <laughs> well that is amazing and i see behind you, you got a couple of books there can you tell us a little bit about the books you've written um yeah this one here um of my dog book this is uh one i released in 2015 that's actually got the archaeology dog and the cancer dog and the koala dogs on it um that one there was um how to raise the ultimate dog so um you don't follow all the veterinary advice of isolating the dog and and yeah through the um critical period and so on and so on and it's basically designed for the owners so they don't get ripped off they can get the you know um know the right questions to ask what dogs look for how to evaluate the dog puppy or adult and go from there and these two um is my autobiography so um so i was actually um uh, this was part one of my autobiography that's got all my detection dogs on there and also behind the scenes uh what happened to me privately while all this stuff was operating um so it's got a lot of elder abuse which my parents were elder abused and same with this one here this one was the um um i suppose the um sequel to it and that's got dog bite prevention and a lot of the a lot of the um a uh, lot of dog training, but also uh, Uncle Bob, who was also elder abused and lost his entire estate there. So it's basically a, um, a thriller as well as dog training education. So it's, it's, it's a two, two-part um, autobiography. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. You've gone around the block a few times. Yeah, a few times. I think I'll go around the block a few more times. So your, your dad got you into dog training, but how did he originally get into it? Um, he was doing he was doing yard work. He never got me into dog trains. Only when my I think my parents divorced, and uh, he took the dog training business. And my mum says, "No, stuff him. We'll, we'll bloody go in competition with him." And um, and then I went to competition with my old man. Oh, okay, okay. But he was a bit of an influence. Think, but how did how did, how did he first how did, how did he first get into it then? Um, he he was doing an investigation business and security company, so right. he had security services. And uh, then uh, there was a big calling for um, dogs, and I, I don't think there was any Rottweilers in the country at the time, or very few in the seventies. And uh, so it was Dogmans and Shepherds and cattle dogs and, and things like this. And uh, then the business grew as far as yard dog uh, dropping off yard dogs. We had like about three or four vans that used to drop dogs all over um, all over uh, Brisbane um, and pick them up every morning. That that went on for many many years. Wow, that's crazy. And do you still do and do you have any involvement in security or working dogs on, on in that spectrum? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm actually um, been decoying um, for the last four years. I've tried. I've tried to retire again this year, and I did my last seminar in 2013 in Sydney. Um, and uh, been and everyone keeps telling me that yeah, asking me to do some more decoy work. 
and I've retired again. I've done the old decoy work again. Um, but but yeah, it's it's just one of those. That's that was one of my fortes is is just the decoy work. I was in 1988. I purchased my first body bite suit, and uh, this is when the RAF and no one had any body bite suits. They just had the you know, big puffy arm pads made by Toowoomba Saddlery or what or Triple S leather and stuff like that. And we sold the RAF Ambly, the first body bite suit in 1991. So how's how's that? Wow. Then, um, back in 91, we had our first, um, we had a shop at the Kennels, which was called the Bite Shop, and we actually sold all Fravo equipment, body bite suits and, and um, you know, arm pads and all sorts of things. That was the first equipment shop in Australia. So we're ahead of our time in a lot of ways, but I, I miss the boat because the money in it now is, is so much bigger than what it was back then. <laughs> For sure. What dogs do you have currently, personal dogs? Um, I've got my own dog. I've only got a. I've only got one, which is a ex koala detection dog, and um, he was um, uh, fostered out by a friend of mine um, once he retired, and um, he's passed on, and and uh, now he's uh, he's our own personal pet. So we got a uh, koala detection dog called Archie, and we got a ragdoll cat called Lounge. Well, I love it. What breed is Archie? Um, Archie's a Kelpie cross um, chocolate dog, um, Kelpie cross um, Labrador. And uh, did the koala work and that. There was, there was, um, we, was, at the start, the first one was owned by Dr. Jim Shields, which is a dog by the name of um, Oscar. And he was the first koala detection dog in the world. Followed then, we got a dog from the RSPCA, which is Maya. She's now working at the University of Sunshine Coast, which I think she's retired now. And then there was Archie. And then once it became a recognized um, search thing that you can actually use dogs, and that I was on the ground floor, then every, all of a sudden, every dog trainer came in. There was koala detection dogs everywhere. Everywhere, so it just exploded from there, and big dollars came from there. So I was, yeah. I was on the ground floor. I think I was the one that actually started it all. Yeah, wow. I was speaking to my wife the other day, and she was telling me how, oh, isn't it fascinating how like a dog can signal that someone is about to have a seizure or about they're about to faint? And she mm-hmm. asked me like, how do they teach that? And I'm like, I have actually no idea. And since you're all about the detection side of things, how is it that a dog is trained to? Be t- to tell the owner, hey, you're about to have a seizure or you're about to faint and things like that? Um, chemical release. And, um, and and this is where, like, if you train search and rescue dogs, you can train the dogs on distressed body scent, which you can actually get through Sigma products and so on. Um, so the dogs will only indicate on the people that are injured and not the other rescuers and, and so on. And you'll also find that with the cancer detection dogs that we did, we actually pioneered the program by using cancer detection dogs with sweat. Um, it's been done with breath and, and feces and so on. And, and I, I studied with um, uh, Dr. John Church over at the uh, Medical Alert Dogs over in, in London. And and um, I was the first one to pioneer the ones with sweat. And uh, we, we know that cancer has a sweat, and this is why it comes out in the skin there. And you can actually train the dog on it if you've got a known cancer patient um, that, that you know that has cancer in one part of the body. So you actually put patches on the part of the body. And in this case, the, the volunteer that we had had, had um, cancer in the right breast. So we put the cancer patch, we put the patch on, on a breast, and then we had patches around the rest of the body. The others were all just controls. And once the dog was successfully doing that, then we're actually able to expand it and the dog then pinpointed the exact cancer swell. And they'll also do this with... um um, with many other different things. And there's Addison's disease, they've, they've been doing stuff on that, um, epilepsy. And again, you get a chemical imbalance before you go and um, something happens there, the dog picks up and freaks out. 
Um, there's a lot of dogs which actually, um, if they find a, a melanoma on you, they'll actually sit there and start gnawing on that part of the arm and, and so on. And the other interesting thing, which uh, which I've seen uh, with what client of ours, uh, we had a dog where he had um, uh, he went to hospital uh, with a with a stroke, and what his wife's dog, which he doesn't get on really well, it's a little Jack Russell or something like that, kept jumping on the bed, gnawing next to his head, and kept doing this for like a few days. And he kept saying, oh, "Piss off, get away, get away, little mongrel like this." And uh, then he ended up having a big stroke, and uh, the doctors said that he had several mini strokes in the couple of weeks before before he had that major one. The dog picked it up, and we also saw that where John Church was telling me in London that um, a dog went crazy on this guest that came there, and the dog normally doesn't go crazy, it was jumping, and it wouldn't stop. And then uh, when the guest left, he walked outside 100 metres and dropped out of a heart attack. So the dogs pick up the chemical release, and when they understand what you'll we smell like completely and totally, and all of a sudden there's some foreign body like cancer or, um, or, or or epilepsy or something like that, the dogs pick up and go, geez, there's something wrong then. They start freaking out and you can actually train the dogs on that. And was that dog that freaked out, was he trained on that odour or scent? No. Or, oh, interesting. No, no. no. And a, a lot of dogs actually pick it up. Um, there's been so much um, uh, information where dogs have picked up on cancers on people. Yeah, um, it and- happened with my mum. My mum had breast yeah. cancer in 2015 and yep. um, she she swears to this day there was um, our old dog passed away. I don't think you ever met him, Panos Fudge. No. Um, she he he was like um, scratching incessantly at at I can't remember which breast it was in, right? And like to the point where he and he was the most gent- gentle dog, and to the point where he actually like hurt her with a scratch. She's like, yeah, Fudge, what are you doing, right? And then uh, I don't know. I have to I have to double check, but it was like a matter of days or weeks later that she was diagnosed with breast cancer. And that's what you listen to. We've had other dogs which um, people have had lung cancer and the dogs are, are basically jumping up and doing CPR on their chest and, and licking them on the, on the breath and things like this. And sometimes it's not an obsessive behaviour because they're dependent on you. Sometimes it's because, shit, mum, what's going on? There's something, you're, you're sick. And they're, yeah. trying to, they're, they're doing that. So, yeah, your, your mum was spot on. It was yeah. your dog. He knew it. And and is that and like that's obviously an evolutionary trait that has been, I guess, bred or developed over the years. Would you say like what, what, how did that even come about for for animals or our dogs in particular to develop that behaviour? Is it because it's, it's it's, like a, I don't think it's I don't think it's developed at all. It's 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 a dog that um, your dog comes home and, and smells you and knows every single smell about you all the way through, and all of a sudden you develop that dirty cancer in uh, as a melanoma. The dog says, "What the hell is this?" Cancer has a smell, and the dog starts gnawing at and chewing at it. So it could be any dog without mm. any you know any dog that does it um, because they know what you smell like normally, and then all of a sudden you develop, and the dog says, "Hey, there's something wrong there in the breath. I smell." death i smell um this this bad smell and they start picking up on it and, and there's just been hundreds and hundreds of cases where this has happened on totally untrained family pets that have picked up cancers and different medical problems with people and the other thing where people have epileptic fits and that they'll start like to to, to, to sweat or, or whatever they start to get a bit a bit a bit nervy and that and then they'll, they'll start sweating the dog starts freaking out like what the hell is this smell there then they go down and uh, they have like a, an epileptic fit and the dog links the two together 
together. So next time he just has to smell um, that little bit of a chemical imbalance and all of a sudden the dog starts freaking out and that's how the dog learns to um, tell the owner, you're just about yeah. to have an epileptic fit. The dog picks mm. it up through association. With the, um, uh, with the blood sugar levels that we, um, that in London, that was a delayed reaction as far as giving the, the dog a reward. So the dog will go up to the owner and go, man, your blood sugar levels are all um, are down and start doing indication and then you'd say, um, get it, and then what will happen, the dog will actually run, pick up the, um, the little medical kit that's got a little handle on for a pickup, and it'll bring it to you. Then you've got to take it out, prick your finger, wait for the test to happen. So it'll be five minutes, and then uh, the dog's going to wait for five minutes before he actually gets a reward. Wow. But you like a complex behaviour, isn't it, really? It is, yeah, and you can't give the reward straight away because if you do and the dog's wrong, then you're the behaviour's incomplete. Dog yeah. bullshitting you. And and so then there some dogs will pick it up as just a learnt behaviour as it occurs, and then yeah. there are people that are training dogs to be a therapy dog or, or whatever. Exactly. In, in so like we get the sweat from a person who has that condition, we train that as an indication for the dog, yeah. and then that happens. Wow, that is fascinating. Cool stuff. It is. It's, it's amazing. We've only just scratched the surface on. I mean, I've, I've had the um, the luxury where I've been able to experiment with so many dogs, and and all these dogs are talking about before is because that's my passion. It's like I want to do something as a dog trainer where I can achieve something that no one else has ever done before, and then maybe create an industry. And, and all of a sudden, we've got all these environmental dogs everywhere. We've got all these um, dogs serving mankind, and that's the legacy that you want to leave. That you've actually developed the dog industry and created another industry where. Where, where dogs can actually serve, you know, man and woman, which is what, which is what you really want. And you know, even with, the, even with the archaeology dogs, when we did those experiments there, we we did um, uh, we trained on old Aboriginal remains, and uh, we built a graveyard in our kennels. We had um, a scent chamber in a plastic tube and a, and a rod that pushes the the um, Aboriginal bone in, and um, they had uh, mounds of soil over them up to six foot high. And the only way that um, scent will come out is through the soil. So we trained the dogs on this, and then we had to train the dogs to do hit such micro um, odors. So in other words, there's no flesh on the bones. These are bones, 250-year-old Aboriginal remains. It dries anything. And the dogs were hitting it no problems at all. And then I had to get a cotton wool bud, wipe it on a bone, go into the training field and have this 100-metre rock wall and just wipe it on the rock wall, but also get several others so you don't think it's the dogs are syndicating on the cotton wool bud. I'll then put like about 20 or 30 cotton wool buds all through the, the rock wall. So we eliminate that side of things. And then the dog comes through then goes, duh, 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 finds where it is, goes, well, there it is, bang, and then go into a sit and does a moonwalk, and then we reward it. So we condition the dog to, um, to indicate on the most micro amounts of odour. And that was the training program was different to other, pro- other programs um, because the, um, uh, the bones were just so old. And it, it was a success. It was great. Now, don't mind my ignorance, but you said Aboriginal bones. Was there a difference, Aboriginal bones or not Aboriginal bones? No, not not at all. What we okay, did cool. is that um, what we did is that um, with the first ones were cadaver dogs, and, and back in the day, this gives you an idea. Back in the day, before all this political correct bullshit came in, um, I was able to go to the University of Queensland and say, "Look, I'm trying a dog to find dead human remains. Can I get some bones?" And they gave me some bones from at the university, at the university, um, some bones of some of the people that donated their, their bodies to science. So I had leg bones and 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 discs and all sorts of things that I trained the dogs on. Uh, this one here with the Aboriginal one is because. I was dealing with a, um, an Aboriginal 
person that was doing um, a lot of um, um, a lot of work for different sites and that, and he managed to tee up with the South Australia Museum if I can actually get some bones up to train the dogs on. So these bones were 250-year-old Aboriginal bones, and that's what we trained Migaloo, the archaeology dog, on. And uh, that was a basis for everything. For sure. I thought maybe because since colonisation here in Australia has only been like, let's say, 300 years, like, is there a different scent to an older bone further than 300 years old? Does the composition change or is it the same? Um, I think I think it'll be about the same, but also yeah. it depends, um, and this gets back to the nitty-gritty of the training and the items that you use. Uh, we did some tests um, with the Aboriginal bones there, and we're actually having the dog find it absolutely everywhere. But then when we did tests with um, um, old soldiers' remains, old soldiers' remains, and, and this is we're looking at that can we go over to Europe and find like old um, war graves and things like this? The dog got confused with it, but then when we put him back on the Aboriginal bones, he hit that like a demon every time bang, and got it, and the other ones it didn't hit. So the dog can become very sense selective, and that's just going to be a matter of training. You've got to keep adjusting your training, that you have to use all the different odours for what the dog's going to indicate on. And another interesting thing about that too, um, which went another step further, we, um, when we were over at uh, Condamine in Western Queensland, they found the big floods of 2011. Uh, they end up uncovering some dinosaur remains. So um, so one of the um, people over there managed to send it over. So we trained, um, and I still got the fossils here, we trained the dog on megafauna fossils, okay, and uh, in the grave thing, and the dog was hitting it everywhere. We then went out, and the video's on YouTube, and the dog made about, I don't know, 10 or 12 hits and started locating all these fossils everywhere on the surface of the ground, um, but it was ignoring, uh, ignoring rocks, um, wood. It hit fossilised wood, hit fossils, and there was 10 indications on average of this dog hitting it. So how do you explain that? They, these are four and a half million year old bones on the surface and then the dogs ignored everything else and just hitting the whole lot. So it still had some odour. And what we thought is that it couldn't hold odour after that long, but when they became to the surface, they probably picked up a fungus or something like this on them and mm. um, it was different to the other things like rocks that were already there. So that so it was basically foreign to the environment and the dogs ended up indicating on them and it was, it was fantastic. That's mind-blowing. It's unbelievable. It's incredible. We think so much about, like, as humans, you know, we're supposedly like top of the food chain, whatnot. But it's like, we—I don't think we know half of it. You know, we, we don't, we don't. And one of the interesting things about it is that I, I like exposing all my failures. I mean, failure is a great teacher, and and I fail so many times to be able to get that one achievement. And uh, and when we uh, we did that one, there we thought this is a great success. So then I went out with a paleontologist to another site where they found um, so when they found the um, uh, megafauna bones, uh, we knew where they were. We put the dog in to see if the dog's going to indicate on them, and the dog walked straight over the top of them. So this goes to show the scent selection on the dog, that when you train the dog with a target odour, we're actually training the dog on an item which came from that site and the dog had no problem hitting all the other items at that site. But when we went to the other site, the dog did absolutely zero, nothing. I walked straight over the top of them. So it goes mm. to show that it's a, it's a training problem, um, but you have to um, train the, the stuff on what the dog's actually going to search for. Yeah, wow. And how deep were these fossils? No, these are on the surface. This is uh, okay. under by the flood. Uh, the, oh, dog, yeah. um, the, the dog made some indications on the ground. Um, I never had a shovel or anything on me. I wasn't going to dig them up. Um, but the dog just went through, found one. I had the GoPro on me, found one, fine, found another one, another indication, and went through. And that was enough. It was just more or less. 
and experiment to confirm that can a dog do that? And what 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 came out of it is that um, that not only with um, old bones and fossils, but you also got the archaeology digs in Egypt and all these other things there. That if you can actually take the dog to the pit where they're digging up things like pottery and things like that, train the dogs in these things there. I would love to see um, detection dogs or archaeology dogs on all these historic sites that are trained on them um, on trained on them, and that's where that again they can serve men and, and bring up. Um, uh, you know, um, bring up history. Wow. I did. I went to a talk, oh, like maybe like eight years ago, and it was all about the cadaver dogs and that one of the ladies who was talking, talking about that dog was saying that there was a body buried in someone's basement, something like four or five foot under the ground, concrete on top, and the dog still indicated through the concrete because I guess the odour had seeped up through the soil or yeah. like into the... Yeah, what is phosphorus and nitrogen? So when the, when the body um, decomposes, um, it's, it sticks to the clay and everything around there, but the odour comes up like a gas-type thing and yeah. it just saturates that, that area there. So you do you do get them. When we started with the cadaver dogs, we actually did um, bodies underwater as well where the dogs are indicating from the front of a boat, where the dog will start clawing the front of the boat to be able to find us. So we'll drop these um, canisters down with body parts, or actually pig parts in it, and then you can work out exactly where the body is by how fast the water's going and so on but the dog can indicate no problems there at all the gas rises so if it's 12 feet 10 feet whatever the dog's still gonna indicate on that that's heavy Mm. and you're still involved in doing that work like currently no, no, not at all, not at all. That was that was past. I mean, I, I, I did the first cadaver dogs back in about 91, 92, so, so geez, what was that, 30 years ago? Yeah. Um, 30 years ago. Just a minute I, ago, just a minute ago. Yeah, a minute ago. And and then and look, I had the first cadaver dogs in the country and then uh, once we um, we started doing stuff for South Australia Police and that homicide, we actually started um, where we had a big story on um, Australia's Most Wanted, so I was on that, not as a criminal, um, and... Um, they did a feature on the cadaver dogs and all of a sudden every single um you know police department with homicide cold cases and um you know just like we need this cadaver dog out to check these areas here because there's none in australia so we started traveling around doing stuff for police and also doing stuff privately for families and so on so we had so much work and then the big one came which is um ivan malat the backpacker murders and um, then we're down there and the dogs were housed at the Barrel Police Station and we're down there searching for bodies. And uh, then straight after that, um, New South Wales then got their own cadaver dogs. Uh, Queensland got their own cadaver dogs. And then all of a sudden, um, I think Queensland had the first cadaver dogs in, in Australia. The Queensland Police had the first ones. That was after mine. That always wow. happens. And, yeah. and were you subcontracting to the government or were you working for a department? No, I was, I was, I was just, um, they were employing me to do the searches and then the um, police started um, training up their own dogs, which is wonderful, and that's what we wanted. Um, mm. And then search and rescue groups started training them and um, now there's, uh, now every state's got cadaver dogs in there. And, and, and the great thing about it is that's going to bring closure to a lot of cases and, and you know, for families and that. So it's another industry which, um, you know, which I'm, I'm quite proud that I started. That's amazing. Besides, besides writing all these cool books at the moment, Gary, what, what's your main sort of line of, of work at the moment? Um, I do I do private lessons um, with the dog trainer. I do speaking gigs um, I'm, um, and also international travel with with dogs and that. So um, people that want to like I just I just flew over to Las Vegas. Um, people are relocating over there, so I, I go as a canine escort. Um, so I pick the dogs up, travel in the dog trainer's van, uh, watch them get loaded on the plane, travel on the plane with them. 
um, and then do a road trip from Los, yeah, Los Angeles to Las Vegas and deliver the dog to the, to the mansion. So, so I do the high-end um, stuff there, which is really cool. And uh, then also do seminars. So um, next week, I'm, um, I think I followed, I just, um, I've been up to Richmond and did some seminars on dog bite prevention, just did another one at Gainda. Uh, and next week, I'm, I'm off to um, New Zealand to do um, um, the big um, animal control officers uh, thing on dog bite prevention and then doing a bit of a tour in New Zealand. So, so yeah, so speaking gigs, the book writing, yeah, I've got, got heaps to keep me occupied. That's awesome. What's a couple of tips that you can give the listeners in terms of dog bite prevention? What would be like maybe the, the top three things that you would suggest if you were walking down the street and there was an aggressive dog or, or a dangerous dog roaming around? What would you suggest people should do? I, I think um, we mainly um, focus it towards the animal control officers and that mm-hmm. this is by having all the gear and that, like the, you know, the ball and the food and things like that to be able, be able to do it. But the first thing, obviously, don't run. As soon as you run, you create prey in that. And the second thing is that if there's a dog on the street that comes up to bow you up, you might find that at, at home that dog might have the courage to be able to run up and bite you, but on the street it might just be defensive, unsure, being away. So he's more than likely going to back off from you or stand off from you. Um, but one of the things that you do is just um, to back the dog off is just like, you know, ah, sit, sit, put your hand out like this, that can confuse a dog to be able to buy you a few seconds and then you've got to scope to see if you can find a wheelie bin somewhere behind a fence, a gate, anything like this to be able to get um, get away from them. But the other thing is just ram anything um, in front of the dog, so whatever you've got to fold or whatever, you've got to protect yourself. Don't use your arm or, or do this type of thing and have the dog bite you. Um, have some type of item for the dog to be able to bite onto if he's a, he's a full-on hard dog. But most of the time, most dogs will actually uh, run their bar, bar you up and just go, get back, sit down, like this, and they'll just back off being a bit confused. So that's probably the best thing, you know, right off the cuff if you've got no equipment on you. And um, and what I've done before where I've gone to someone's place to buy a dog, the dog's flying out to attack me, I've just, like, ripped my shirt off like that and just put it straight in his mouth there and the owner's come running up to grab the dog and um, and that saved me. My hat wow. has saved me. Uh, where uh, the dog can't see what they're biting, um, that that becomes a shield like an umbrella, or you can ram the hat in the dog's face uh, while you're telling the dog, get back, sit down, like this. Mm. Little things like that will, will make a bit of a difference. It can be and confusing. That's all in, shameless plug, that's all in the book. I actually wrote a book on dog bite prevention, and what I decided to do is put in my autobiography, so I've got the whole book in there as well. Well, for most of the listeners, because a lot of them, people aren't going to be watching it, can you tell us the name of that book that you just put up to the camera? Um, the two books are called The Dog Trainer. So um, The Dog Trainer, and, and this is basically a autobiography on work and private life, and um, it's, it's split into two, two volumes because it was so big. And this is my entire career over 40 years. That is um, awesome. It, Everything in there, and the unusual thing about there's about ten people wrote about in this book. Everyone that I've written, everything everyone I write about ends up dying for some reason. So, <laughs> don't write so about me, please. Book two, so you've got to you got to find out in book two how many people died in book one. It's going to blow oh. a lot of people. <laughs> so, uh, what's your take on what's happened with the uh, with the prong collar in Queensland, mate? I'm keen to hear it. Uh, the prong collar, um, the, the the pinch collar, as and the pinch collar, you know, as, it's a, a super humane thing, and it's a it's a much needed training tool that a lot of people use. And by taking away these 
important life-saving tools, it's going to destroy a lot of people and destroy a lot of dogs. And, and just dealing with a private lesson with a lady, she was an elderly lady, um, she can walk a dog everywhere on a pinch collar without a problem at all. Dog sees another dog, she can just go like this, a little yank, and she's got full control. She tried doing it without a pinch, co- without a pinch collar and the dog dragged her down the street. She's going to bust her hip. That dog is going to run off after another dog and rip another dog to pieces. And now that dog sits at home uh, behind the fence and doesn't go for a walk anywhere because the dog's going to drag her over. This is a life-saving device. And for the RSPCA um, and, and these dog training extremists to try to ban this is absolutely ridiculous. I'm still waiting to hear from, you know, um, hear how, they're going, how they can actually train dogs to do certain things by using your positive-only extremist methods uh, to be able to do it. And, it's, and the ones that are suffering is going to be the dogs. Yep. And they are. And I've seen thousands of dogs suffering over the years and that because of these extremist uh, methods. And now that they've put something through because, you know, it hasn't, hasn't um, hit, hit home around here in, in New South Wales, is there... In your, in your opinion, any turning back? Is there any reform that's going to happen or is it something that's going to stick around forever? Um, they're going to try and they're going to try and do it, and, and, and what I fear is that the RSPCA will eventually have total control of the entire animal industry, and uh, you won't be able to do anything without the RSPCA approved methods. It's going to be dog trainers, everyone, um, and and the thing is that um, that most of the people that support for animal welfare um, are brainwashed because of the RSPCA lies. There is that much lies that come from them. How you cannot fix every single dog problem by using positive-only methods. Um, I'm still waiting. It's surprising how silent these people are. Um, I have a chicken-killing dog as an example. Show me how you're going to fix this dog killing chickens by using positive-only training methods. Mm -hmm. I can't do it, and I haven't done it in 35 years. I don't know anyone else that's done it. Please show us, RSPCA, how you'll do that because the results by taking these tools like electric collars and pinch collars away uh, means that there's going to be a shitload of chickens that die from that dog. You won't be able to fix that dog, and then that dog's going to get put down. But yep. it doesn't matter. The RSPCA still makes a profit. What actually happens is that the council gets the RSPCA to manage their facilities and the RSPCA invoice the council um, every month for thousands of dollars to manage their dogs. Then they get paid for the board and then they get paid for putting the dog down. They make a fortune out of killing dogs. This is their, this is their basis. So with the RSPCA, there is a lot of false information there and I dread the day that they um, start taking control of the whole industry. It's getting to the stage where the government will listen to the RSPCA and their complete and total uh, fake pseudoscience and their extremist views and basic bullshit. Um, and we've got, we've got professional trainers, um, but we can't, and, and they don't listen to us. They don't even listen to us. They just I think that's, I think that's where the, the... We want. I think that's where the death before discomfort comes in, isn't it? Like they'd much rather see that dog that kills chickens probably get a needle rather than for whatever political ideology, ideological reasons, rather than putting it on a prong or, or using an e-collar to, to aversively tell the dog. Exactly. And this is what I'm going to be covering with one of my other videos. Um, I've, I've, um, um, I've spent so much time with all the RSPCA stuff. They're absolutely wonderful people. They're dog lovers. And after they've been um, in the RSPCA for a while, they find nearly the whole time they're just putting dogs down. And it's sort of, and I've seen this firsthand. Now, as a trainer, I had orders for over 100 dogs for Papua New Guinea and over 100 dogs at the RSPCA just down the road from us that was suitable were all put down. 
okay? And mm. I could have saved all those lives. But it's death before discomfort and they don't want the dog to go overseas in case, you know, um, in case something happens. It's just an absolute crop. They've got the choice to be able to save dog's life and they're choosing to use their extremist views, um, death before discomfort, and that dog must comply to the RSPCA-approved methods to fix that dog. And if it doesn't, that dog dies. They're going to kill that dog. And, and that's the problem. And with most people that are listening, they're thinking, but isn't that like, because everybody thinks dog shelter equals RSPCA. Like you talk about the ordinary, everyday Joe Blow down the street. Yeah. And, you know, obviously there's so many different rescue organisations, different, you know, council shelters, but the RSPCA oh. is the one that's internationally known. It's, you know, it, it obviously has um, a big reputation. Yeah. And, and it's sad to hear the, these things. Two questions. Number one is, do you think it's deliberate that the agenda is happening and twofold with the staff that you've interacted with, lovely people care about animals and they're experiencing these things like putting more dogs down than actually properly rehabilitating them. Exactly. What, what is uh, their I, um, I, experience? I, I, can, I can say with the staff, they are wonderful people, intelligent people, dog-loving people, and, and this is what I'm putting in, in my next video, which I'll be putting up. Up. They use privately on their own dogs and dogs that they train choker chains, pinch collars, and also electric collars. I've trained staff of the RSPCA privately how to use electric collars when they've tried everything to stop their dog from attacking another dog over food, and we've fixed it in one session with the electric collar. So they all use privately, not all, but a lot of use privately check chains and, and, and pinch collars and electric collars. Not a problem with that. And even they disagree with all the, the RSPCA extremist views. When a dog could be saved and they decide to kill that dog because um, they disagree with this um, discomfort thing, it is absolutely uh, ridiculous. And the dogs are the ones that pay for it. And I'm actually standing up for the dogs, not for any other organisation. It's a dog. I see too many of them dying because of it. Yeah, it's, it's, ob it's obviously, um, as you said, it's the extremist. You know, if you choose to be positive and if you choose not to put pressure on a dog, that's completely up to you. But to enforce mm. a law and to enforce an agenda, which is obviously emotional porn in so many ways, it's that, yeah. oh, of course, you can't kill the dog. And from personal experience, and I've explained on the podcast before, when I used to work at a, um, a charity um um, like a re rescue organization, there was a little dog, little um, poodle. The thing was a sweet little thing, but he was pretty intense with resource guarding and he would resource guard any single thing that he had. So it wasn't just around food and things like that. And oh. we started, as soon as he became our property, I, I started to progress through some training and to teach him. And within like three, four, five days, things were significantly getting better. Um, they didn't like the fact that I had to correct the dog a couple of times and the day that I had off, I came back the next day and the dog was dead. And they, they killed the dog while I wasn't there because uh -huh. they, they said, look, Panos, it, just, it doesn't look good that you had to correct the dog. I'm like, you, you killed him. You, you gave him capital punishment. So you and, don't want me to give him momentary punishment for a behavior that he shouldn't do so he can rehome him and he has a good life. He's only a four-year-old little tiny black dog. He's cute yeah. and he's not like over the top. And it's not that I've ever like, you know, I will obviously say up front that there has been times where I do think a dog needs to be behaviorally euthanized. I believe that. It's not very often in my experience, but there's times that the circumstances that are that are surrounding the whole situation, it happens, especially when you're in an organization, you see some dogs, how long is he going to stay here for? Sometimes it's not going to really work out. It happens. 
but the the rate of dogs that are getting put down and of course you know not to mention the funding and the agenda behind it, it it's it's pretty sickening but it's just i guess the saddest part about it well for me anyway is that they killed the dog when i wasn't there so yeah. obviously they knew that it was wrong and that i was going to pick you know kick up a stink about it which i did <laughs> but um and i probably wouldn't have allowed it to happen but also the fact that most people don't know and look and i guess anyone who's going to be tuning in this far into this episode and even just listen to the episode of this podcast are into dogs and mm. hopefully we're educating and we're just bringing light to the situation because it's something that is worthy of discussing so that we can start to ask the question oh just because you work with dogs you love dogs and the assumption is just because you correct the dog, what does that mean? I hate the dog and I want him to suffer. Like it actually doesn't make any sense when you think about yeah. it. And what is it that we have to do, especially when there's, you know, I was listening to um, something not related to dog training, talking about, you know, the wokeness and the political correctness and how everything's gone completely out of control. And it is an agenda that's happening, not just in dog training, but it's kind of happening everywhere yeah. is that, you know, um, most individuals, would agree with what we're saying, but what's not on our side is the institutions. Institutions mm. are against us because, yeah. and again, depends on how deep we go today in terms of how they want to suppress thought and actions and and deed. But I think there is something happening which is stopping us from talking about it. And look, and a lot of people will be hesitant to talk about this on air and, you know, all of our reputations are on the line and we can be under the firing squad of so many different extremists, as you call them. Exactly, yeah. But and look, that, yeah. that's that's fine with me because my priority is the dogs and the thousands yeah. of dogs that are put down. What I want is a royal commission into the RSPCA. I want a royal commission to the RSPCA. It's a very evil organisation uh, up the top, but the staff are fine. It is just ridiculous. And and I, I just I just um, what I've seen over the years is it just blows it just blows me away. And the public need to see what is really happening and how many thousands of dogs have been destroyed. I mean, when you look at the charts that there's five thousand dogs put down in a year, seventy percent of them were for behavioural problems. Now you give those seventy percent, which is like three and a half thousand dogs, to dog trainers, and we'll probably fix like ninety five percent of them, get them into other homes. Now get this. Agreed. Down at the local RSPCA near our kennels at Narangba, um, the staff at the RSPCA, which I, I, knew, I got on really well with, they were wonderful, wonderful people, they knew there was a death sentence every time an adult dog came in there, like a shepherd or a Rottweiler or something like this. So they stopped the people at the gate says, don't come in here, wow. just go see down the road and let him see if he'll take the dog first because your dog's going to be put down if it comes in here. And I took dozens and dozens of dogs and you know you know what our success rate was? Tell me. We rehabilitated them, we retrained them and we rehomed them and we got 100% success yeah. rate. Every single dog 100% went in the home but under the RSPCA rules, 100% of those dogs will be dead. Is wow. the RSPCA about for all creatures great and small or is it basically just kill, you know, killed a lot of them? And, and the other thing which, which got me wound up, um, which I've, I've already done a video on, is remember the breed-specific legislation? Yes. The RSPCA made a fortune on that. Mm-hmm. Of course. Because they were managing the pound for the council. So as they started, all the uh, council started um, bringing all the dogs in, the pound was filled with pit bulls and pit bull types, and then if you wanted to appeal it, then all of a sudden you had to wait like nine months while it goes through 
court, and then the RSPCA invoiced the council. So they got paid for all the board the dogs in there, they got paid for the put the dogs down. So they made an absolute killing on, on, on the pit bulls. Now, why didn't they stand up against the council and say, we're for all creatures great and small, but not for yeah. the pit bulls? So that just shows profits before uh, welfare. So sorry if I'm going off on this, but I just... When, I've just did, this, much of when did this really start to take off, all of this, this change, you know, and, and where do you think that came from? Um, the, the um, instead of like being protecting the animals and, and um, protecting the animals, they want to take control of the whole industry. Tell us how we're going to train dogs. Um, trying to brainwash people with pseudoscience and all this other rubbish on how, how you can actually train dogs their approved way. Then they turned like a parasite to the dog industry saying, you're not going to use electric collars. You're not going to use um, pinch collars. It's all right for them to have an opinion. It's a democracy. If they can say Oh, with the RSPCA, we don't agree with them. That's fine. But now they're saying we don't agree with them. We're going to ban them. And us and all our extremists, we're going to lobby the local politicians because we got lots of votes here and you're going to ban them and give us exactly what we want. And that's what's happening. And now they're targeting the industry. Just have a look at, um, do they do snake, snake avoidance down there? No. Yeah, there's um, snake avoidance. How many dogs are going to get um, die from snake you know, from snake bites if they ban the electric collars? If, it, just, if. It, just, it just goes on and on. And one thing I can say to you, how much farm animals and wildlife are going to be killed per annum um, because these, are t- these important life-saving tools have been taken away. And there's already research done now that they found that where there's bans on electric collars, there's been an increase of stock kills and wildlife kills. Yeah. So and and that's what they're doing. They, they're just they're just going, there's a mountain of death behind the RSPCA, and that's what's happening. And do you think with all the rules that come in regards to the dog training industry come from RSPCA or are they coming from other bodies? They probably come from several bodies and things like this. But um, you know, years ago, it used to be positive trainers. Um, it was just like okay, I just was a marketing thing for you know, the little old lady, the little dog in the handbag or whatever. Um, but now it's just um, so imprinted that um, even things with, um, where, where people go down to buy a check chain from Pet Barn, as an example there, they're shamed into wanting a check chain. You can't use a check chain. There's other ways of doing that. Use a, use a collar. The brainwashing with their rubbish has gone right through the industry and just about every single dog trainer, 90% of them, you look at it, it's all positive only, force-free, This and which is wonderful, and that's that's a great thing to try and do that, but it does not work on every dog. And yeah. that's what and, and for for them to say that you're going to do it on every dog is sentencing thousands more dogs to death. Bottom yeah, line. Exa- exactly. And, look, it's, um, it's a big shame, and obviously um, I'm concerned about, where the industry is going over the next 10, 20, 30 years. Um, and not just in dog training. I'm also concerned about what world my son will live in as he's only three years old now. What world is he going to live in? And what is he going to be learned at school? Not just because of our ideas of how to train a dog, but I think, and this is going a little bit outside of the realm, but I think it's all connected is that what is being taught is that it's going so far away from, you know, it's very left sort of wing sort of ideas that are great ideas, but when things are going into practice, a lot of the things aren't actually feasible. And back to dog training, I think, or just the dog industry is that my forecast, and I hope I'm wrong, is that are they trying to phase out the working breeds so that we, you know, Jane down the road can only have access to a dog that's under 12 kilos. He's an oodly doodle sort of breed. And, that's all that is fit for the people of our society. Is that something that you think we're heading towards or is it just accidentally happening to be this way? 
No, I think it's just so the RSPCA, RSPCA can have total control of the whole industry. Mm-hmm. Um, for profits. Towns, control the pet shops. Um, I mean, what do they do down in Sydney? They open up care centres now to sell their dogs and that, and, um, um, you know, and they're closing down pet shops. So, I mean, they're going to have total control of everything. You won't be able mm. to do nothing. So, to me, it's a big power play of controlling everyone and every part of the industry. And, and that's what it is. It's, power, it's a power play. And people need to, need to realise this and then put the brakes on the RSPCA and say, Let's, let us manage our dogs, you know, at, um, you know, our way, a humane way, and actually electric collars are one of the most humane ways of training a dog. Yeah. And when you, look at, when you look at people that, um, for example, a dog's aggressed another dog, they'll yell, yell and scream at the dog and the dog's vocally dominated, then they grab the dog and they drag the dog back, they scruff it by the neck. That All these things that they do without electric collar, but with electric collar, they can just go pulse like this dog. Is, oh, I don't like that. Comes running back. That dog did something to me. And then you can fix a problem in one session. Um, I've got a video on there, which is um, a chap spent 12 months trying to get his dog to come back to him on the beach and was running up after other dogs and that. We fixed it in under 10 minutes. It's all yep. on video yep. with a little collar. So that till taken away is going to cause a lot of dogs to be locked up in yards or put down. And it's and all from the RSPCA. It, it's unfortunate. I have a friend who has a deaf dog and – we want to teach it a good, reliable recall, except in New South Wales, we're not allowed to use an e-collar. So we purchase an e-collar, put on the dog. We're breaking the law to teach the dog to come back to him. Yeah. However, now we can't – we have to keep the dog on the lead, which we'll always keep him on the lead, but you can't call that dog to come back. He's a big, powerful breed. He can't hear anything. And we can yeah. use all the techniques. We'll try our best to – and we're, we're pretty successful. But wouldn't it be awesome if he ever did run out the front door and we taught him a recall with the e-collar that – we, and like every time he comes out the crate, we just put the e collar on. It would be an, an awesome idea. However, exactly. I haven't had any access to it, and it'll be very hard for me as a professional to teach this because I'll be breaking the law of the land just to educate a dog. And in, in the whole time that I've been involved in in the industry, I have never been able to use an e collar. I've seen how it works. I've learned a lot about it, and I've learned a lot of techniques that I can kind of transfer into into my ordinary practice. However. This is a big shame. And anyone who says to me, hey, look, I'm moving out to the country. Do we know anything about snake avoidance? I'm like, look, I've got a couple of people that I could recommend, but you need to go to the other side of the border to train mm. your dog and then come back. Yeah. Like something special across the border. But then now you want to use a prong collar. Now you've got to come to New South Wales, use a prong collar, and then go back. And, and also the lies. So many of my clients have said, oh, I've heard that it's illegal. I've had certain people from certain organizations say that it's illegal. Isn't it? like illegal to say something's illegal, especially if you're a professional that's giving advice. So it's just, it's such an unregulated organ um, industry. And is, yeah. the, the people that have the actual experience aren't able, able to even have a say, whether we even know to have a say, because it seems like what happened up in Queensland and we had, um, we had Brittany on Brittany Young on talking about what happened up in Queensland. It's just within three days. Oh, by the way, we're banning prong collars, and everyone's like, "Yay!" Because they look bad, and to get their votes. However, once the law's in, what are you going to do now? Besides doing a royal commission, which is such a big ask, and who's oh. even going to enforce that? It's exactly. just it's it's just a very it's a very sticky situation. Very sad as well, and especially someone like yourself who's been in the industry for so long and watched it grow and develop. For it to be tainted and and to be destroyed and demolished is just, it's it's concerning. How far yeah. away? How far away do you think the e-collar ban is in in Queensland? Uh, it's gonna. I think it's going to be a nationwide thing. What's what's going to happen? They're going to start pushing the states. Well, this state's done it. That state's done it. Just ban the importation of them. 
yeah, it'll be, they'll stop the importation of them and then all of a sudden it'll be a national thing. Nationally, no electric collars, no pinch collars. Um, they're trying to ban the choke chains, but they're quite happy using the RSPCA choke rope. So I suppose with their rope, at least they can choke in comfort than using a yeah. check chain. So, oh, and, like and a, of, they're using like a slip collar instead of a, instead of a correction chain? Yeah, yeah. I, I, no, just like a lasso, like a lasso. Yeah. And, this is the thing which which really made me laugh and made me angry. They're banning check chain, or they, they don't want anyone to use check chains. And here I go to the RSPCA. They've all got the the ropes, with, you know, which is a lasso. And all the volunteers go in there. They take the dog out of the cage, and then the dogs dragging them down for like thirty minutes um, for their walk and back on a thirty minute choke fest. Choke, yeah. choke, choke, and they can't correct the dogs because it's against RSPCA policies. So yeah. the dogs choking for thirty minutes. But if I use a check chain, give the dog two or three pulses or corrections, and have that dog walking on a loose lead for the whole thirty minutes, I'm cruel. Do you see what I mean? So, so the thing is that the information they're giving is a lie. They know it's a lie, and that makes them a fraud as well, and that's yep. very powerful. So no, there's no way in the world that all positive training fixes every problem, and they're trying to peddle that bullshit that it does, and that's an absolute lie and fraudulent. And uh, there's a lot of dogs which are going to die for it, and unfortunately there's a lot of um, people that are brainwashed into thinking that everything they say is true, so they believe in their shit. And yeah. uh, that's that's where we're at at the moment. So all we can do is just keep pushing all the stuff, and I'm going to keep pushing the stuff on the RSPCA and councils. So basically, the public can actually see. Hang on, th- th- what what he's saying is right, and hopefully there'll be a bit of a backlash if people's going to stand up against them and back them off. So professionals can actually use electric collars and pinch collars and save lots and lots of dogs' lives instead of having them all being put down because the RSPCA says you know death before discomfort. Is there any organisation that you know of that's in Australia that is can that can oppose these agendas or or these legislations? Like, is there someone that we can join? Like, I know the IACP have um, a certain body that that is working towards this. Is there something that's in Australia that you know of? Yeah, there's Steve Courtney from, and he's um, he runs um, the Professional Dog Trainers of Australia and so on. So there's there's different groups that are all pushing against um, you know what's happening, but it just seems that whatever the RSPCA says, that's con- that's considered gold, and, and that's it. And all the other information goes in, they don't even look at it. So it's just a really biased situation. So people everywhere are doing what they can, but we really need to educate the public on exactly how far this is going. Hundred percent, and look, and you can see that you know we can do the best that we can, and we can discuss these topics, and we can try to educate as many people as we can. And and I think the most important thing is in terms of what we can do as an individual is that you know, ex- not be scared about putting a prong collar in a pick. Like, okay, for example, mm-hmm. it's legal in a, in New South Wales for me to yeah. use a prong collar, so don't be shy and scared to go. Hey, this is prong collar, and this is me using the prong collar. Where it could be. And I know, as, as and I used to be like this, but now I'm not so like timid about. It, is that I put a I had a photo of me a selfie with the dog who's wearing a prong collar, and it's like, yeah, that dog listens to you because he's scared of you. And it's like you've only seen a photo, and he's a happy dog in the photo. How can you say exactly. that he's? And it's like, and then that, yeah, I, scared, that, I scared him into being happy. Yeah, exactly. And it's just that, and that was like years and years and years ago, like you know, yeah. eight years ago, and that kind of put me off. Because, of course, I don't want to give that impression. But then on top of it, now more recently, and, of course, you know, we've got the show, we talk about it, I show it, I teach it. I think it's important that we continue to show it because if we can start to be silenced by these sort of agendas and the and this mindset, then 
we are giving into it and we're just going to give up all of our rights and all of the, and of course, as you said, it's not just for our egos to be like, I want to be able to train dogs. Like, no, no, dogs will die because of their behavior. They get capital punishment because Mm. we're not allowed to correct the dog. And most of the time when you use a pinch collar in it, you're using pressure and negative reinforcement anyway. You're not even punishing the dog. So, like, I just just don't understand it. And see, what what a lot of people um, forget is that the RSPCA, when they started doing classes, they used check chains. In America, when they when they do classes, they use pinch collars um, at the RSPCA in America there. And uh, in New Zealand, a welfare group that was so anti-electric um, collars, the council went to shut them down because of complaints by the neighbours because they were barking so much. So they started um, uh, bringing in using, elect- um, using bark collars. Still against it, hate bark collars, but we've got to put them on the dogs. They're hypocrites. Yeah. And I don't know any positive dog trainer, which is 100% positive all the time. They, they don't. They'll have that, that one thing where they won't, they'll use negative training, but you'll never hear about it. I've seen it firsthand so many times. Yeah. And I know, I know um, positive dog trainers, which are really big in the industry and things like this, and they've got electric collars, but they don't tell you that. I'm not going to mention their names, but they yeah. don't tell you that. They're at home. When the dog starts mucking, uh, mucking up, they'll put the check chain on, they'll put a pinch collar on, sort the, um, sort the dog out, get them sorted, then go back to their little harness and collar and go back in public like yeah. everything's all and that's that's part of the problem. Half of the positive dog train industry is an absolute. Um, it's a fraud. It's an yeah. absolute fraud. Not not the the genuine positive dog trains. They're wonderful people and they do a great job. But I'm talking about the extremist side. And I think that's what we have to be careful of. And I think it's most important to be almost like the, the topic of the I mean the the title of the episode. It's that it's the extremist in anything is what you have to be cautious yeah. of. It's not. Um, the person who believes a certain thing, hey, I'm going to try my best to be most positive because I try my best to be most positive in every single interaction with the dog. Um, just like today, a dog jumped on me, I, you know, walked into his space, I gave him a jump on me, reward the crap out of the dog for, for not jumping. Of course, you got a couple of corrections throughout the session, but I don't walk in there and s- scold the dog just because he jumped on me, even though I want to give him a correction yeah. for incompatible behavior. I also want to be able to create a bit of a relationship. And I know that that's going to happen by creating a relationship, not just about, but I think everybody who has this, oh my God, you punish your your dog or punish your child, thinks that we're abusing them. And I think there was there was a time and way back back before I could think about it, and maybe you can speak more to it, is that punishment and abuse kind of landed in the same category. Was there like a time in 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 your in your experience that you saw that punishment and abuse became associated together? Was like a clear moment for you or you um, saw that? I, I, I can't really remember that. I, I know that um, back in the day, like the 80s and 90s, we used check chains and pinch collars. You know, we, we used them, but we're, you know, we, we're not, we don't want to destroy the dog's confidence. We want to yeah. develop their confidence. That, and, of course. And we don't use them on every dog. There's no one in yeah. the world. I use collars and harnesses and different things there. But yeah. if you've got a dog which is a hard character dog that's aggro wants to kill another dog there, then I might place him in a sit-stay on the, on the um, pinch collar. And if he gets yeah. up, I'll give him a, a correction on the pinch collar, and eventually that sit-stay is going to override the dog desire to go and kill that dog there but you need it and you're not going to do that on a collar and you know now it's become so um they become so big as far as like everything has to be positive only you know look what happened with the children now now a child can kick the shit out of someone's car door and they go oh you've got big feelings haven't you do you want to have an ice cream talk about it you know it's it's rubbish and that's what's happening with the dogs and it's going to get worse and the and big losers are going to be 
the dogs on um, capital punishment. Death Row, there's going to be so many more dogs that die. There's going to be so much more wildlife that dies. There's going to be so many more farm animals that die under this positive training-only regime which you're doing with the RSPCA and the brainwashing. And that's, that's the end results. It's, it's crazy. You know, it's something that, you know, was that I've started to see in the last couple of years is I've had like numerous amount of clients that say, look, we see like three, four different trainers, all of them, you know, we tried to be positive only and they're all positive only, but you can see now that the general public are seeing like, it's, it's a crock of shit. Like I don't understand, first of all, that they're hypocrites and they're not actually following a positive only. I saw the lady got angry and got angry at the dog and, and tried to scold it because she got frustrated or whatever, but also it just simply doesn't work. It's like how many times do I have to see somebody to get some sort of results and, you know, and they were trying to compliment me. We were like, we're within this session. We were able to get so much out of all the other people that we saw and we knew that we had to come and seek out somebody who trained like you because we tried to follow that sort of regime and it just simply didn't work. And that was over like, so maybe in the last five years, I would say, I've seen more people start to wake up to it. It's still not mainstream. It's still not something that's happening everywhere, but... It is going to happen. It is going to happen, and everyone's just got to keep pushing this stuff with the RSPCA and the positive dog training extremists. Now, the positive dog training um, people, they're they're great friends. I've got so many positive dog training friends, and I I love them. They're really, really good people, very dedicated, and if I can actually train a dog to do everything positive only, I would, but I do... But these positive dog trainers, they also know that it does not work on every dog, so they'll refer you over to a balanced trainer. They will say, this won't work on that and do it. But the extremists will just keep taking your money, and here they are taking your money. And what could be fixed in one session with electric collar, uh, a bark collar or, or something like this, the extremists will say, oh, no, we do have to do it the positive way. It's scientific, you know. It's yeah. you know, scientific. It's all the science, science, science. And then all of a sudden they've booked in for 10, 20 lessons. So the positive yeah. and extremists don't make money on a cure. They make money on a subscription. Yeah, so exactly. what, you will, what you will get, like the pharmaceutical industry, what will cost you $200 to fix a problem? You might be spending two grand with a positive dog train extremist. That's why they want to keep, keep the electric collars and things away because they can make mm. more, more money. And, you know, and, and it's, it's um, I had a... Um, good friend of mine that got employment, he lasted at a, at a positive dog training facility and he lasted one day and he quit. And the whole reason for that is that he was told that he's not to fix any of the problems with all the clients because they come back every week to fix a problem, give them a bit here, give them a bit there. Oh, so gosh. it's basically bringing them along. It's just stringing them along with, with crap to extract their money. And I've got probably the worst business, um, you know, uh, module because I just try to get everything done one session, show them how to continue the training. And yeah. if I don't have it all sorted in one session, then I know I failed. I've got to go back and do some more work on them. So I try to get as much done in one session and make sure they're self-content and they know exactly what they're doing and not just going, oh, I'm going to give you a little um, schnitzel here. I'm going to give a little piece here and we'll stretch this over 10 weeks. Yeah. No, I can't do that. That's just rip, ripping people off. 100%. And there's something, um, the, the, I guess the last thing um, I wanted to talk about, and something that I saw on your Facebook a couple of posts ago, how um, trainers are now, or trainers, are using stuffed toys to assess and rehabilitate and work on behavior modification, like a stuffed dog toy, to yeah. as if the dog that can smell fossils and things from, you know, from a, a cotton tip and you're trying to expect the dog to not react to, to a stuffed toy. And the amount of times that I've heard that on, on two levels, first of all, it's just ridiculous. And yeah. whoever buys into it is just is a dummy as well. But also, where is your dog, though? 
Can't you bring your dog out and put him in a downstay and let him hang out there for 25 minutes and at a distance, at an appropriate distance, we work on the dog? Like, why can't you have your dog in this situation? It's just, it, it, it blows my mind. I just thought it was so funny when I saw that in the comments. Yeah, Crazy. yeah. But but all I can do is just keep pushing um, pushing this so we can save dogs' lives. And as soon as the whole industry just turns around and says, no, buggy you RSPCA, buggy you um, or you extremists, you're not going to do this. Now's the time to shut them down, shut them down and start pushing what professional dog training is all about. And, you know, and with people that own dogs, I mean, we want responsible dog owners, farmers, um, all these people to be able to manage their dogs properly yeah. for their situation without any interference from these extremist groups like the RSPCA. And government bodies as well. And to, government to, to bodies. Not, not be telling everybody what to do in every single area of their life. Exactly. And that's so important. And, you know, we saw that in the last coming years. Hey, look, today's been an awesome conversation. Thanks so much, Gary, for coming on. It's been um, no really insightful on so many levels. Where can the people find you, mate? Um, they can go to gazjackson.com, that's G-A-Z-J-A-C-K-S-O-N.com, and then we've got all the social media with us, Facebook and YouTube. We're doing sort of a heap of videos on YouTube at the moment, so, yeah, they can, they can find me, and I, I do um, private lessons um, mainly in southeast Queensland here, but I also travel around Australia doing lessons as well. Thank you so much, Gary, for coming on the show. Much appreciated. No, no worries. Keep the dream alive. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, mate. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Life With Your Dog. Please share with your friends if you're enjoying our podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook, Life With Your Dog Podcast. My name's Panos, and to keep up with my dog training adventures, tips and techniques, you can find me on Instagram at np underscore dog underscore training, my website npdogtraining.com or my YouTube channel, Nutris Pooches. Thanks for listening, guys. My name's Luke. If you'd like to find out more about my dog training services, you can find me at www.kizuna, that's K-I-Z-U-N-A, canine, C-A-N-I-N-E, dot com, dot A-U. Uh, I'm also on Instagram at Kizuna Canine Training. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.